I died to sin upon the cross. I'm bowed to Jesus in his death. The old is gone. So now I must rely on him with every breath. Easy to sing, Father. But what a wonderful truth. Father, tonight, would our hearts know all the more clearly that we're bound to Jesus in his death. And so we will be raised with him one day. Help us to live now in the light of that. Help me as I speak. Help me to speak clearly and faithfully to your word. Help us all to listen and to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you studied any Greek mythology when you were at school, but uh, one of my favourite stories is the story of Odysseus, um, Homer's Odyssey, if you read the, the epic. And uh, there's a particular great moment in Odysseus's voyage. He and his crew are, are trying to navigate a stretch of water off the coast of Sicily. But the problem is that before them are two enormous sea monsters. And Odysseus has to somehow navigate his way safely between them. On one side is Scylla. Scylla is uh, an enormous monster. Her body consists of 12 tentacle-like legs. She has six snapping dog's heads around her waist. She had uh, six necks, at the end of which was a head with three sets of sharp, sharp teeth. So any, any ship sailing nearby to Scylla would get massacred. So you would want to avoid that. But on the other side was another monster. He was called Charybdis. And Charybdis was essentially an enormous gaping mouth with an insatiable thirst for the water. So he's always swallowing, which created this enormous whirlpool. And so any ship which got too close to Charybdis got sucked in and drowned. So what would Odysseus do? He was between Scylla and Charybdis. Go too far one way and get massacred. But go too far the other way and drown. And facing us tonight is a very similar dilemma. How to navigate between two opposing theological errors. On the one side is what we saw last week. The the error is called legalism. Legalism. That's the belief that our moral and religious performance somehow plays a role in our salvation. And we heard last week just how damaging that false teaching is. If we're looking to our own performance for our salvation, even in part, we will be robbed of all assurance and all joy in our Christian life. So we rightly try and steer away from that monster, don't we? But very easy for us to oversteer and end up in the opposite error, which we might call license. License is the belief that we're saved uh, because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, then it doesn't really matter how we live. We can just carry on living in sin. We can be half-hearted in our discipleship. Uh, We can settle down as nominal, fringe, Sunday Christians. Because, hey, God will forgive. That's his job. I don't know, given your character, given your temperament and and your background, which one of those two monsters are we more likely to steer closer to? Legalism or license? It'll be different for each one of us, won't it? My my experience of life, I I tend to sort of zigzag between them uh, endlessly, uh, falling into one trap and then the other. Well, last week we heard Paul's warning about legalism, but our passage today is a passionate appeal for the church not to fall into license. He has tears in his eyes as he writes this chapter. 
because he doesn't want to see the Philippians, his brothers and sisters, his joy and his crowning. He doesn't want to get them, see them so steer away from legalism that they fall into license. But he is adamant there is a safe way through. Just look at how he closes his argument. Chapter 4, verse 1. Look down with me. How he closes things. This is how he wraps up. Verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. So there is a safe path between Scylla and Charybdis. There is a way through between these monsters of legalism and license. There is a safe way to stand firm in the Lord. And we're going to discover that tonight. So we've got two things you'll see from your handout. And the first is this. We must run to win what Christ has already won for us. Last week we met the circumcision group. They were Paul's false teachers he was opposing there. This week's group, if they had a name, they'd probably call themselves the maturity group. Uh, They reasoned that because we're saved by grace alone, there's no need to struggle on and strain against sin. Surely we've arrived at spiritual heights already. So Paul pleads with the Philippians, look, if that's what maturity looks like, then I'm not mature. Let's pick it up at verse 12. Down with me. Paul writes, not that I've already attained all this or I've already been made perfect or mature, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take a view of such things. I know a number of you are marathon runners. I don't get it, but I, that's, that's, the, that's the truth. And, and Paul compares the Christian life here with, with running a marathon. He's working hard to hit that finish line. His heart is pumping. His sweat is dripping. The lactic acid in his legs are burning. and his, he's, he's chafing. My, my friends who've uh, run marathons, they tell me the worst bit about running marathons is the chafing from the shorts, apparently. So Paul's shorts are chafing, probably. But he's unrelenting. He's unrelenting in pressing on to win the prize. He, he wants to grasp hold of that crown, that victor's crown. But what is that crown? Well, the prize for him is that one day his weak, sinful body will be transformed to be just like Jesus's. That one day he and the Philippian church will be made mature, perfect. He wants to to grasp hold of that victor's crown. But he isn't there yet. He's not yet arrived. So in contrast to what the false teachers are saying, that the goal is still yet to come. So we've got to get this right. Spiritual maturity doesn't look like pristine perfection now. No, it looks like incredibly hard work. Now, if you are here last week, you might be thinking, hang on, Paul, hang on. This sounds as if you're steering us dangerously close to legalism. You told us last week that our moral and religious performances can't save us. You told us that only God can declare us righteous. You told us that only through Christ 
we can have certainty of glory. But now you're saying we need to work hard? Surely that's legalism. How do we put those two together? We'll look down again at verse 12. Look how Paul explains it. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I love the image here. In my mind, you've got Paul straining to, to reach the prize. He's got to, he wants to take hold of the prize, the crown of being like Christ. He's trying to take hold of that. But it's as if Christ's hand is around Paul. <laughs> A much bigger hand. Paul's straining to seize that crown, but, but Christ's hand is around him. We press on to take hold of that prize of perfection because Christ has already taken hold of us. You might know Bradley Wiggins. He's the first guy, the first British guy to win the Tour de France. I think that was in 2012. Is that right? 2012. And in his autobiography, he describes how it felt as he approached the finish line. And he knew he was going to win. This is what he says. The further we go into the race, the more I'm beginning to realize this is it. I've won the tour. I've done it. With each kilometer going by, I'm a little more inspired by that thought. And it makes me push even more. There's a sort of aggression, a sort of hunger within me, an urge to keep gaining as much time as possible. I want to win this race. But there's no sense of, oh, you've done it right now. You you can just back off slightly. No, I want more. 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 And that's exactly Paul's attitude here. Look again at verse 16. He writes, only let us live up to what we have already attained. It's like we heard last week, this is the good news of Christianity, that Christ has already attained full righteousness for us. When when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin and my failure and my brokenness. No, he sees Christ's perfection. He declares me righteous. But my response to that calling, having been declared righteous, is now to live righteously. More, more, more. Two things Paul says will really help us to do that. Firstly, there's two little bullet points. The first first thing is we must forget what lies behind. I have a friend, I was ordained with him actually, who used to be a sports agent. So he, he represented a number of the, the top athletes at the 2012 Olympics. And he once asked an Olympian, what, what, I think he was a sprinter, what, what was the secret of your success? And this is what the Olympian said to him. The only way to win a race is to forget all previous victories, which could lead you into false pride. And also all former failures which could give you false fears. Each race is a new beginning. Pressing on to the finish tape is everything. That's all that matters. I wonder, what is it that's behind you that you need to forget? It might be past sins which haunt you. For Paul, it was probably his persecution of the church. For us, it might be past mistakes, past infidelities, Events which we might replay over and over and over in our heads, wishing we'd acted differently, but we didn't. We, we, I don't know, maybe, maybe we still label ourselves or identify ourselves around that event or what we did. Paul says, forget it. Choose to forget it. 
It might be past sins. It might be past losses, which we kind of still pine for. So things which we chose to give up for Jesus. So for Paul, it might have been his old status as a Pharisee. But for us, I don't know, it might have been a non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend. We chose to give up because we wanted to follow Jesus. It may be um, we're, we pine for, for, for our old status at, at work. Maybe we're in, in, a, in a circle, but because we wanted to live for Jesus, we slightly got ousted out of it. And maybe we, we turned down a job promotion because we knew it would take us away from church life and involvement. And maybe we, we still pine for those losses. Well, forget them, Paul says. Forget them. Maybe it's past sins, past losses. Maybe it's past glories we're kind of nostalgic about. The things which we might think are to our credit, but really have no bearing on the present race at all. So for Paul, it might have been the things he achieved as an apostle. For us, I don't know, maybe it was the fact that we were um, president of the Christian Union when we were at university. Maybe it's the fact we went to the right churches and we know all the right people. Maybe we've done incredible things here at St. John's in God's name. Forget it, Paul says. Forget it. Whether it's past sins, past losses, past glories, we need to actively make those decisions. Forget what lies behind. Instead, secondly, we're to strain towards what is ahead. We used to this, aren't we? Strenuous exertion. Uh, we used to that at work. We used to strenuous exertion at, at home. I was chatting with someone before the service saying how difficult it is raising children. We strenuously exert ourselves in all these different ways. But do we strain for Jesus? Bradley Wiggins knew he'd won that race, but he didn't let back. He pushed on more and more and more. There's a man I know in the congregation who gets up an hour before his children in the morning, which is around 5 a.m., just so he can have a quiet time. He knows Christ, he's a Christian, but he wants to know him more and more and more. I know of a lady who um, heard last week's sermon, but she was where her friend, her friend didn't. And so she made the active decision to try and meet up with her that week to, to share this passage with her. A friend has faith, but this lady wanted her friend to grow more and more and more in faith. Friends, we, we pursue Christ. We are satisfied with Christ. But never, be, never be satisfied with your Christianity. Run to win what Christ has already won for you. There's our first point. But the second one is this. Follow people with minds set on the goal. Look down at verse 17 with me, if you'd be so kind. Verse 17. Paul writes, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Paul has tears in his eyes. He's pleading with the Philippians. Because he knows, he knows just how attractive this maturity group were. You can imagine the Philippians, they, they would have looked at Paul in prison, suffering for the gospel, battling against sin, exerting himself strenuously, and then they would have looked at the maturity group 
who are saying, you can have Christianity without the suffering. You can have spirituality without the battles. You can have grace without any exertion. Eat what you want. Sleep with whom you want. Do what you want. Because, hey, God will forgive. That's his job. This teaching lives on today. Many live as enemies of the cross. We see this today. I wonder how many of you have met so-called Christians who, who say they like Christ, but they don't like his teaching. Well, they, they like what he says on love, but they don't like what he says on marriage and, and sexuality. They like what he says about the poor and creation, but not so much on evangelism and, and the need for people to repent and turn to him. They, those things are primitive and unsophisticated. They, they like what Jesus says about tolerance, but ironically, they're so intolerant of people who actually stick to Jesus' teaching. Friends, this liberal, pick-and-mix version of Christianity is no Christianity at all. Someone once parodied it a bit like this. He said that it's a God without wrath, bringing people without sin into kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. So you can see why Paul says in verse 18, many live as enemies of the cross. Many. Liberal Christianity is all about the here and now. They think they've arrived. They think they're already mature. So Paul's quite clear what their end goal is, what their maturity is. Look at verse 19. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is is set on earthly things. The language here reminds me quite vividly of one of my favourite films. You might have seen it. It's called Fight Club. Have you seen Fight Club? Um, you might recall the scene. It's right at the end of the film. Edward Norton and Helena Bonham Carter, they're standing at the top of this skyscraper and they're watching in silence as the world around them collapses. It's almost apocalyptic. Buildings are being blown up and they're just tumbling to the ground. And over the back of this is a Pixies song. And they're asking the question, where is my mind? Where is my mind? It's a depressing, nihilistic film. I love it. <laughs> but it frames an important question, doesn't it? Where's our mind? If our Christianity is all about the here and now, if our minds are largely centered on being happy now, secure now, fulfilled now, we're never ever going to strain for what lies ahead. We will not fight and suffer for holiness. Instead, we'll begin living for a world destined for destruction. But thankfully, this world is not our home. That's what we've been reminded throughout this letter, isn't it? And that's how Paul brings it home in verse 20. He says, but, but, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. We've heard all these themes before, haven't we? You might remember Philippi is, is all the way over in Macedonia, it's like modern day Greece, but, but it was a Roman colony. Rome is all the way over there, which means the people living in, in, in Philippi were citizens of Rome, albeit from afar. Philippi looked to Caesar for salvation, for, for protection, for glory. 
And so in the same way, Paul says, the church is, is a colony of heaven. We might be very proud of our culture, our nationality, our heritage. But we're first and foremost citizens of heaven. So we look to Christ, not Caesar, to Christ Knowing that one day he's going to bring into subjection every rebel power. He's going to transform this weak, sinful body so that it's going to be just like his. We are straining towards him and towards that goal. So as we close, here are just two questions for us, two bullet point questions. Firstly, may I ask, who are you following? Who are you following? I've never run a marathon thankfully, but, but I'm told it really matters when you're running one, that, that you follow the right people, that it's someone to set the, the right pace for you. Because if you end up following the guy in the panda costume, you're not going to get a very good time, are you? Or if you end up following the guy who thinks he's already won the race and he, and he starts celebrating and, and you start celebrating with him, you're going to look an idiot when actually there's another lap to go and, uh, and you drop out. Well, we might, be, we might be tempted to follow someone who's running at a leisurely pace. Someone who's not particularly radical in their Christian living. Someone who's content to sit at the very edges of church life. We might be tempted to follow someone who thinks they've already arrived. They've given up altogether fighting against sin. And begun living for this world. No, we don't do that. Look what we do. Look at verse 17. We follow men and women whose minds are fixed on the goal. Verse 17. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. So who are you following? For me, I think of a number of men in my life who've been very influential. Um, I want to be like my dad, I think. I don't even like my dad in every way. Who wants to be like their dad in every way? It'll be awful. But I want to be like my dad in terms of his boldness. He doesn't mind looking foolish. It's a very attractive quality. I follow him. I want to be like a man called Anthony, who's very attractive. He has this quality who, he has a quiet strength about him. He doesn't need to wear his strength. He has a quiet meekness to him, a very Christ-like quality, and I'm, I'm following him in that way. I want to. I want to be like Simon. Simon has a remarkable sense of humor, even in the midst of suffering. I want to be like him. I want to follow him. So as I look to Christ, as as I'm straining for Jesus, aching for righteousness, I'm following men whose minds aren't on the here and now, but whose minds are set on heaven, on the goal. Who who do you follow? If you can't think of anyone, can I encourage you to join a small group? (laughs) Because it will give you plenty of people to follow, plenty of more mature Christians to look to and, and love. Um, I encourage you, read, read Christian books, read Christian biographies, go on our website, uh, order some, uh, follow men and women from the past. Who are you following? Well, our last question is this. Who's following you? Who's following you? You might joke, no, no one should follow me, I'm like the guy in the panda costume. <laughs> Saying that terrible lap time, no one should follow me. But actually, there are always people following us. If you're married, husbands, your wives are following your lead. So are you helping your wives pursue righteousness? Are you helping them to grow clearer in their faith? Some of you, I know, are parents here. And again, your your children are following your lead. 
So are you setting them the right priorities? Are you, are you modeling a love for God and a love for his people above everything else? Or are you modeling other priorities? And most of us, I think, almost all of us are in small groups. And uh, just think, there will be, there'll be younger believers, or at least less mature believers in those groups, who will be looking to you and following you. So when you offer up prayer requests after the Bible study, they'll be, seeing, they'll, be, they'll be following your example. They'll be learning what sort of things you prioritize, what sort of things you think are important. So if you keep praying for your Aunt Agnes's ingrowing toenail, they're going to start thinking that's what really matters. But if you're praying for holiness in that area, in that area, they're going to learn that's really important. And those of us who are in positions of church leadership, obviously people are following us. Are we aware of our capacity either for great good or great damage? This should put the fear of God in us. We're to to be models, not of perfection. (laughs) That'd be crippling, wouldn't it? Not of perfection, but progress. So it it doesn't matter if we sin, but we, we, well, it does, but we don't mask our sin. We're quite open about it so that everyone can see we're, we're striving to become more like Jesus. there we have it how on earth do we navigate between Scylla and Charybdis how do we, how do we navigate between legalism and license and I hope you don't go away tonight thinking oh Christianity is a hair shirt religion, it's all about flagellating yourself and, and going oh just getting through it and grudging like a marathon oh lactic acid, oh no forget the run <laughs> think of the one you're running to And run with a smile on your face. Because friends, on that day when you meet Christ, you're going to be made perfectly like him. Fix your eyes on him. Desire him. Know him. Let's pray. Almighty God, please put in our hearts such a love for Jesus, such a desire for our Saviour, that we want to be like him. We praise you that he has done everything for us, that he has run the race for us, that he has seized hold of us. Thank you, Father, for his attainment of that perfect righteousness in our place. But Lord, in response, help us to run to him, help us to become more like him, to love him.